Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. From wars to censorship to cultural issues, you're with Mark Morano and Unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, we begin today with a couple of breaking news clips from the uh, Julian Assange rally in London. And TNT was on the scene. This is part of the TNT broadcast of the Assange London rally. This is clip one, Stella Assange in the limelight, TNT broadcast at the London rally. Take a look. How pathetic the US case is. They have to rely on lies. And then the prosecutors say, don't question these lies because that would offend our ally. 14 years on, all they can do is repeat the lies from the very first Pentagon conference, press conference, talking points sheet. What they're trying to argue is that state secrets trump revealing state crimes. This is the balance they're trying to shift. They want impunity. They don't want to be uh, scrutinized. And journalism stands in the way. And in that courtroom, they are having to make their position increasingly clear. They have to admit that what they're doing is criminalizing journalism, is criminalizing the truth. They are liars, they are criminals, and they are persecuting the journalist who exposed them. Julian is a truth teller, he is a political prisoner, and the world is watching these courts and how they deal with this case. Please be here and come and march to Downing Street after uh, the proceedings are over this afternoon. And that was uh, Stella Assange. All right, and clip two, just breaking news from TNT's coverage of the Julian Assange London rally. We have Andrew Wilkie taking the center stage. Let's roll clip two of the rally. Who remembers collateral murder? Who can forget that grainy black and white image of an American attack helicopter gunning down innocent Iraqis and Reuters journalists. Who can remember that? And we have this madness that the man who told the truth, who provided hard evidence of US war crimes, he's the one in front of a court. It should have been the pilots of that helicopter. But some common sense has broken out. At least now the Australian Parliament has finally voted. The Australian Prime Minister has finally stood up and given a clear, strong signal to the Americans that enough is enough. Regardless of what you think of Julian, this matter must be brought to an end. The extradition must be dropped. The charges must be dropped. He must be busted out of Belmarsh. He must be allowed to be reunited with his family. Because Julian Assange is the hero here, not the villain. All right, and now the final clip. John Shipton, which is Julian Assange's father, at the London rally. Take a listen to this, clip three. Just a few things. Julian has spent in one form of incarceration and another, or another, over 14 years. Julian has spent over 14 years in one form of incarceration or another. Are you good with that? No! All of Julian's human rights suspended. Are you good with that? No! Due process abuse after abuse. Are you good with that? No! 
over 25 court cases in one form or another for an innocent man. No charges laid. Are you good with that? No! I just want to thank you all for coming and thank you for your strength and understanding, as I do, that all genius ascends from the people, ascends from us upward. And it is us, in the manifestation of the Australian Parliament, declaring that Julian Assange must be brought home, has shown our courage manifested in the parliamentary declaration. Is that not magnificent? See you this afternoon for the march. And that was Julian Assange's father at the Julian Assange rally in London. Stay tuned for TNT for continuous updates of Julian Assange and the latest developments. All right. Um, moving along here, we have uh, breaking news. Leading British physicist, physician says going to net zero could possibly lead to 6 billion people starving. This is Professor Angus Daglish physician, oncologist, pathologist, medical researcher, roll clip one. Back to the climate change, it's exactly the same with that. I mean, the BBC do not report things that do, are not in agreement with the CO2. We know that climate change has gone on forever. I mean, it, it, it ever such. You have great big cycles, a bit like financial markets, and then tiny little uh, cooling warming cycles there. It's gone on for ages. To say it's CO2, man-made CO2, it is total sophistry. They've manipulated all that data for that. And do you really think that if we stopped all CO2 tomorrow, do you know what would happen if we stopped all CO2, man-made CO2 output tomorrow? We'd all starve. At least six billion people would probably starve because it is, it's an absolutely important gas. It uh, actually uh, increases as a result of global warming, from all my reading. Yes, and that was uh, the physician, Dr. Angus uh, Delagesh in the UK, just laying it out there exactly right. And it's good to see now, this was a discussion actually uh, dealing with COVID, public health, excess deaths. And it's we now know that the British Medical Journal and uh, 200 other medical journals want to include climate as part of a public health issue. The World Health Organization wants to include climate as part of a public health issue. So it's good now to see physicians, doctors, oncologists, medical researchers speaking out about the global warming con as it relates to their world, which it's being forced upon. All right, this is, I wanted to play this clip. I hope we have the whole cool clip. This is Paul Harvey. Let's go back to 1992. Now, recently, Tucker Carlson said he'd like to go back to America circa 1993. And that's the world he wants to go back to. So this is going to a year before that. This is 1992. This is Paul Harvey, radio legend, uh, broadcaster for 50 plus years, uh, now deceased. But this is him in 1992, warning us about climate change, fear-mongering, in 1992, never trust paid for scientific studies. I just find this clip amazing because this was a warning from 32 years ago. Roll clip five. Barely a week goes by, but what some researcher tries to scare us or trick us out of research money by claiming that the sky is falling. And with the willing complicity of headline hungry media, a recent crisis of the month had to do with global warming. An ozone hole is opening up over the United States, we were told, the effects of which were already measurable in an increase in skin cancer. On the contrary, destroying chlorine around the polar vortex has been declining since January. A major objective of a recent shuttle mission was to determine the scope and scale of the so-called ozone hole, and the silence since has been deafening from those whose livelihood depends on creating crises. 
on those whose livelihood depends on creating crises. Well, who might those people be? Let's fast forward. My face is getting all wavy as we go through the time machine. Let's fast forward 32 years to to, uh, uh, 2024. This is Biden administration, Admiral Rachel, in quotes, Levine. Climate change is having a disproportionate effect on black communities. We go from Paul Harvey and we go from the physician in UK succinctly laying out that global warming is a con to Admiral Rachel Levine, the highest ranking female uh, admiral ever, so they say, clip two. Hello, I'm Admiral Rachel Levine. This Black History Month, I'm pleased to partner with OMH in advancing better health through better understanding for black communities. Climate change is having a disproportionate effect on the physical and mental health of black communities. Black Americans are more likely than white Americans to live in areas and housing that increase their susceptibility to climate-related health issues. And 65% of black Americans report feeling anxious about climate change's impact. Through our Office of Climate Change and Health Equity and the Office of Environmental Justice, we're working with providers and community leaders to identify innovative approaches that empower communities to address the health consequences linked to climate change. And no, that is not a satire. That is the highest ranking female <clears throat> admiral in our nation's history, the United States. And what he's probably doing this for is uh, Black History Month. And he's basically saying climate change is now part of identity politics. It's going to harm African-Americans the most. It reminds me of the 1970s Kentucky Fried movie, I believe it was. It had this, and I've been trying to find the clip. Um, Russians launch nuclear strike. Uh, women and children, minorities hurt the most. You know, kind of like... No matter what happens, they're always going to have the victim group. Identity politics will be injected. And that's what Rachel Levine is doing there. It is just embarrassing, silly. If you want to actually protect people from extreme weather, and I'll even give you whether it's natural or man-made, you want wealth, freedom, technology, particularly freedom of movement. Uh, and unfortunately, all of those things are under assault right now. And the technology we do have is going to be used against us. But the idea is 99% drop reduction in climate-related deaths over the last 100 years occurred because of growing wealth, technology, and by using fossil fuels to protect us from bad weather. And we've always had extreme weather. It's not getting worse. Even the UN National Climate Assessment all admit this. All our, all our federal agencies, there's no either declining or no trend in extreme weather. Uh, so in, in, in general, climate change, there is no actual verifiable way to trace a man-made influence if the current weather is not anomalously strange. It's just, it's the strangest argument you could ever make. And then to bring identity politics in like this is just, uh, I just, you know, I, I can't imagine the, the, the African-American communities in the United States any one of them worried about climate change. It is just embarrassing, silly, stupid, nonsensical. All right. Uh, this is interesting. This is um, in Canada, the, uh, the national, I think it's the New Democratic Party is what they call it, is actually proposing a ban on talking about uh, speaking well of fossil fuel. If you promote fossil fuels, if you promote oil, coal, gas uh and you talk about how life-saving they are how they're wonderful how cheap abundant energy can build civilizations and has been one of the greatest liberators of mankind in the history of our planet how it freed uh workers from menial labor how fossil fuels save the whales by replacing whale oil uh lamps with uh oil and coal and electrical lamps i mean it's amazing well if you do that now Canada's new Democratic Party introduces bill that will prescribe jail terms for you. The bill is C-732, currently in Canada, also known as the Fossil Fuel Advertising Act. Uh, it's, it's a bill by a member of parliament, Charlie Angus. And here to explain 
uh, is this is a great clip from a um, TikTok video. And yes, TikTok, which they want to ban. Uh, but it's a it's a great video explaining uh, from A to Z what this bill is all about. Let's roll clip three. Are you ready to go to jail for promoting the use of fossil fuels? Well, the Canadian government, more specifically NDP MP Charlie Angus, recently introduced Bill C-372. If approved, this legislation would subject individuals advocating for the use of fossil fuels to potential imprisonment for up to two years and substantial fines, reaching hundreds of thousands of dollars. In Section 6 of the bill, they prohibit the promotion of fossil fuels, fossil fuel-related brand elements, or the production of fossil fuels unless authorized by the provisions of the Act. The bill also extends its prohibitions to statements or suggestions asserting that one type of fossil fuel is less harmful than others, or implying positive environmental health, reconciliation with indigenous peoples, or economic outcomes. So if I were to say that using natural gas in place of coal has been the single largest driver of American carbon emission reductions in recent years, or that oil and gas production is integral to Canada's economy, these factually accurate statements could lead to my government-sanctioned bankruptcy. I can't put into words the insanity of this bill. Imagine getting penalized for saying that fossil fuels are integral to our civilization and prevent mass casualties. You don't have to imagine it. This is the world in which we live. In my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, I laid out how, first of all, it started with the weaponization of language. And I detailed two dozen examples of the Boston Globe, of CBS News, of major media figures, all comparing anyone who dissents on climate change orthodoxy from the UN or Al Gore as nothing short of climate deniers directly relatable to Holocaust deniers. And this was the idea is to demonize uh, the climate skeptics. You had Al Gore, you had um, Regenda Pachari from the former head of the UN climate panel, say we were akin to people who believe, you know, the, the moon landing was staged and uh, things like that. Now, I know there's a whole course of people out there to actually now claim the moon landing stage and even people like Tucker Carlson are questioning it. But the idea is to demonize and dismiss you uh, when it comes to climate change. And that's what they've been doing. And this is just a long line. In the United States, we have Senator Whitehouse, who has literally come out multiple times and called for RICO Act against fossil fuel companies, climate deniers in his mind. The RICO is a racketeering uh, policy by the federal government to go after organized crime because they, in their minds, they think that climate change is so important that we must uh, stop anyone from uh, dissenting or saying anything that's not uh, approved by the government or the, the corporations or academia or our ruling class elite. So that's where we're going with this. Another area you can't question anything happens to be in the world of public health. COVID, dying with COVID, dying because of COVID. In my book, The Great Reset, I detail how you know, the Colorado pathologists were, uh, uh, were talking about people dying COVID deaths blamed on people who were shot. They, you know why? People in car accidents labeled as COVID deaths because they died with COVID, even though they were shot or died in a car accident. Uh, and this is what, uh, you know, this is the way they did it. So now excess deaths. And the simple question is what the heck is going on? This is Dr. John Campbell from the UK. He has been a man that has been just driven by the data, driven by the facts and horror at what he's seen uh, in the public health world since COVID. And he appeals to left-wingers like Jimmy Dore. I've seen other people, I mean, and, he, and he just presents the data. Uh, and he's cited widely across the political spectrum. Let's take a look. This is excess death since COVID. And I got to give you a hint. It's not from COVID. It may be from something they call the jab. Ugh, sorry about that. Uh, clip four. What the heck is going on here total civilian deaths in world war ii 70,000. so the last couple of years excess deaths for reasons that aren't being explained aren't even being addressed for questions that aren't even being asked more deaths than civilian uk deaths in world war ii we, we lost a lot more combatants than that but they were civilian deaths united states um, 
week one to 37, 2023, the OEC data. Um, 155,000 more Americans died than we expect, attributable to COVID, 76,000. Again, quite how accurate that is, we don't have full data, but we can see a lot of people died that's not attributable to COVID. 7.8% more than we would expect dying. In 2022 in the United States, it was uh, getting on for half a million, 495,749, 17.53% above what we would expect. Add together the two years, so the 155,000 that died in 2023, first 30, uh, that's only the first 37 weeks, of course, where we have data. Uh, the getting on half a million that died in 2022, we get 651,512. Yes, and those are pretty startling numbers. The question is, why? And the answer is emerging. And it looks as though this is going to be fingered and blamed out, not by official government sources, but by independent researchers like John Campbell, Dr. John Campbell, which you just saw, by the dissenting epidemiologists, by dissenting public health officials who are investigating this. And we're already seeing so many different uh, vaccine, so-called mRNA, COVID uh, jabs, reactions that this is what's emerging as a likely culprit for these excess deaths. Do you see the one year, the United States was 17% above what's expected? Now, having said just about the vaccine or the COVID jab, it's also the effects of lockdown, deferred cancer and other health treatments, mental health crisis from lockdowns, uh, and just general disruption of society and particularly uh, extreme stress from economic blight and just emotional social stress from these kind of a transition the the uh lockdowns caused this all leads to a sort of a delayed and we're seeing that here so they're going to be continuing to work on this and we're going to be continuing to cover it i'd like to do a show on that as well maybe we'll talk about that today uh a little bit uh with our guest and by the way our um our next guest today is going to be uh, coming up after the break. We are going to hold on one second here. I'm having a, a technical malfunction here, but we are coming back here with uh, Katie Ashby, and she is going to be. She was from the New Zealand government, uh, working with initiatives in New Zealand, fighting the public health tyranny, fighting the COVID tyranny. So Katie Ashby Coppins will be joining us when we come back. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Stay tuned. TNT's Timothy Shea. Oh, it was a great day. The ratios, the ratios. John Kennedy, Senator John Kennedy, who we thought was MAGA, who we thought was America first, who still continues to make all the right noises. Then he, he does the wrong things. And the last straw was him voting with the 22 turncoats to send more tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine. Ukraine doesn't need any more money. Ukraine doesn't need any more of our support. We're the problem in Ukraine. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player and proud supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14 and I watched her struggle, but MDA helped her get the best treatments and care. And they also helped kids like my buddy, Ethan. My name is Ethan and I'm 12 years old. Thanks to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and people like you, I have more hope than ever before. From day one, they've treated me like family at my local care center. AMDA is the only one that funds over 150 care centers across the U.S. to help provide state-of-the-art care for adults and kids like me. For over 70 years, MDA has been transforming the lives of people living with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and other related neuromuscular diseases. They fund the research for breakthrough treatments, care, and cures. And MDA provides support to thousands of families like mine and Ethan's in communities like yours. Thanks to MDA, kids and adults can live life to its fullest. Join us and learn more at MDA.org today. Unbiased information. Honest and forthright. News without the misinformation. It doesn't matter what side you're from. What matters is what you say, the truthfulness behind it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, well, joining us now is Katie Ashby Coppins, and I believe I said that correctly, civil, litiga civil litigator, human rights lawyer. She has been battling uh, a lot in Australia and New Zealand, the COVID tyranny, the public health uh, just insanity that has befallen the world since year 2020. Uh, welcome to the program, uh, Katie. Thanks, Mac. Thanks for having me. All right, great. T tell us a little bit about your background and what what are some of the things you've done to push back against public health tyranny? Yeah, look, it has been a nonstop, uh, I guess, three and a half years. Uh, in New Zealand, I'm head of legal for a group called Voices of Freedom, a 100,000 strong membership, uh, grassroots organization run by three mums. Uh, during COVID uh, and the mandates, we assisted thousands and thousands of people with resources, uh, webinars to assist them through the mandate process uh, and to see that they got the be best outcome from their, for themselves and their family. Uh, in New Zealand, we also took quite a few of the court cases, including about the uh, the midwives and the mandates, uh, assisted on the Defence Force case, and then also took the case against uh, the vaccines for the 5 to 12-year-olds. Uh, and that then launched me back into uh, law in Australia, having met uh, a legal team over here in Australia uh, through a number of the experts on both cases. Uh, and now we're currently uh, pursuing Pfizer and Moderna for the their products on the basis that they are GMOs um, under the Australian definition, uh, and they failed to get the necessary licenses to deal with GMOs in this country. Yeah, by the way, just on that last point, yeah, there's all this fear about genetically modified food restrictions. The EU won't even give out, you know, loans to African countries if they accept GMO. And yet we have this, what you could call the genetically modified vaccine. I always say that in quotes, the mRNA. And yet they're just accepted without any of that. So what's the, what just on that one point on the GMO, does that look like it has a good legal case? Will Australia look at that at New Zealand? And will they actually, will that actually get legs, you think, in the judicial system, regulatory state? Um, ordinarily, and prior to the last four years, I was very confident in all of my, um, uh, you know, a, if a client asked for a, a, how it was going to go and prospects, I'd be able to give them a percentage chance. Uh, this one legally does have very good prospects because the definitions are so clear. It's almost quite beautiful in its simplicity, this case, uh, and it's ticking all the boxes and satisfying all the definitions. Uh, we do. We have been to court already. The judges considering whether or not our doctor, Dr. Julian Fidge, has uh, standing to bring the bring the action as an aggrieved person, uh, and given it's a civil action as opposed to a judicial review against the government, we consider that it's got a much better chance of getting up. Wow. Okay. So, now, are you from Australia or New Zealand? Where did you? Where did you? I'm actually. <laughs> I'm actually from the States, but I grew up in New Zealand and I live in Australia. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So and you where were you during COVID, the, the worst parts, the lockdown? Were you in Australia or New Zealand? I was in both countries when I was let back into New Zealand. Uh, but yeah. I was in Victoria um in Melbourne with Dan Andrews for the first uh year and a bit. Uh, and well, then I got to go and <laughs> got to, got to go and meet Jacinda. <laughs> Well, let, let's uh, Jacinda Ardine. Yeah, let's let's take a little walk back in history. Then tell us. So, where were you when the, when you know in March of 2020 when the insanity of you know when the World Health Organization told the world, if you want to know how to stop a virus, copy China. China knows what they're doing. And of course, China was in full tyranny mode, locking people in homes, hazmat suits, shutting down the entire economy, killing animals. Uh, and the World Health Organization said, copy China. Their exact words. Where were you when that went down, when the first lockdowns occurred? Were you in New Zealand or Australia? Melbourne in Australia. Melbourne, okay. So walk us through, as Americans, we heard a lot of horror stories about what was happening in both Australia and New Zealand. We heard stories about helicopters on beaches forcing people off. We heard stories about police visiting women uh, who had posted something on Facebook about a rally. We heard uh, about quarantine camps and apps that traced you and uh, and just all sorts of horrors. Just walk us through how bad or how tyrannical the Australian and New Zealand governments were and what you personally had to experience before you started fighting back. 
Yeah, look, I think you've probably summarised uh, some of the most pertinent ones, and I'm so glad that they actually got airtime and you got to see and hear about them over there because we did feel like we were on islands uh, remote from everybody and everything. Uh, in Australia, the lockdowns were hard. They were significant. Uh, the MIQ hotel program was ridiculous with all of the uh, guards ending up um, carrying on with all of the uh, inmates, I guess, or people that were travelling. And lo and behold, COVID spread and uh, really took hold of the state a lot better uh, for, well, a, a in a way that allowed them to continue to lock us down for a lot longer. Uh, we had curfews. I think 8pm was the curfew in um, Melbourne. And uh, if you were on the streets after 8pm or before 5am, there were usually issues. Town was dead. I'd walk through the city in the mornings and you could have rolled a bowling ball down the middle of Collins Street, which was usually one of our most viable and vibrant areas. Uh, so that was you know, just decimated. And of course, you know, the businesses, everyone's lives have been changed forever. Uh, it's, it was exactly as you mentioned before, but it was really horrific. And it was for an extended period of time, months and months and months and months and months into years. Was when they, when they did all these measures, were they ever voted on by a single democratic parliament institution of any kind, or was this all done through executive orders and through public health directives? Yeah, so in Australia, um, uh, health emergencies are dealt with under the Emergency Act, so it becomes a state emergency. So that's why we had all of those quite um, incredibly passionate uh, premiers standing on their podiums of truth with their health ministers, uh, you know, screaming at people. Uh, what is concerning is that, particularly in Melbourne, if you want to talk about whether or not there's democratic process, uh, the Dan Andrews, the premier at the time, got voted back in, which is incredible. Uh, but we've got ridiculous things in Australia where, you know, there was a party called the Dan I Hate Dan Andrews Party, uh, and that got votes all the way back to Dan Andrews. So, you know, it, it, the whole thing's a diabolical, corrupt mess. Well, but just to be clear, no one actually voted for any of those restrictions you just laid out. That was all imposed upon you by an unelected, uh, by unelected bureaucrats and executive orders. There was no vote of any legislative body that said, hear ye, hear ye, we will vote now to, you know, to shut down the city, to ban uh, travel, to issue stay-at-home orders, to, to cancel weddings and funerals. Was there any vote at all in Australia or New Zealand that you're aware of? No. Absolutely none. Everyone was operating under emergency, uh, and that allowed them inordinate amounts of power to be able to make these directives. And then tell us a little bit about the um, the freedom of speech and expression. I understand there were some protests, but they weren't welcome, and the police were very on and trying to, to crush this dissent. We saw this, by the way, in Europe with the anti-vaccine mandate rallies. But what exactly, you know, when we hear the story about, you know, if you posted something about a rally on Facebook, you'd be visited by the police. Tell us a little bit about the censorship and the suppression of free speech uh, that was going on as well. Yeah, so censorship happened on all levels. Uh, you couldn't even talk to your friends about these things uh, without them uh, jumping down your throat. But certainly the Facebook image that you saw of the mother of three, I think uh, she was arrested in her home suggesting a, a rally in either Ballot Rat or Bendigo. Uh, and I think even on Dan Andrews' last hurrah, he had her arrested. And this was well after, like this is only a few months ago. And so it's it was beyond ridiculous. We had uh, protesters being pelted with rubber bullets, uh, no um, uh, TV time or anything for the protesters. It was quashed as quickly as it could. Every Saturday morning, I'd walk past the event centre and it would be full, filled with cops just waiting to go and pounce to their next area. We would have helicopters flying across um, suburbs to make sure that people weren't having parties um, or congregating uh, at their homes. So um, that was incredible. But the messaging on television was only one sort of messaging. No dissent could be raised. You couldn't talk about any of these things and, um, you know, freedom of speech was dead. 
How did they justify no freedom of speech like that? Because the idea is misinformation kills. Like if you speak against the lockdown, you you could be killing grandma. Is that like what? Did they, when the politicians did they even try to give a reason why you couldn't have a rally? I guess you couldn't have a rally because you couldn't congregate. But why couldn't you at least speak on social media or anything like that? Why was that considered so criminal? Uh, because you were being considered to. Uh organize or dissent against um, the narrative and you could just couldn't have that we don't have freedom of speech as our number one um, amendment in um, Australia nor or New Zealand uh, so it's not necessarily as constitutionally uh, guarded as it is in America uh, and as a consequence it wasn't respected but look I have to also say what about my fellow New Zealanders and Australians where were they no, yeah, I'm well, I'll ask you that. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Where, you know about the compliance level versus resistance. But one other question I had, I've always wondered, is these apps? You had, I guess, a track and trace app. Is this a rudimentary understanding? Like, if you went to a grocery store, you could be alerted like hours later that someone you were near in a grocery store later tested positive for COVID, and you had a choice to self quarantine at home or be taken to a government detention center, hotel, or otherwise. Is that basically how it worked? Did everyone have to have some kind of track and trace app, and was the government monitoring that? Yeah, there was. Uh, so, um, funnily enough, I didn't use one. Uh, <laughs> And it was to the extent that you had to scan into each place that you were going into. Uh, I couldn't even go and get a car park parking permit for my car in the middle of Melbourne because I needed to have a vaccine pass on a track oh. and trace to go and get myself scanned in to meet the council to get a parking permit. Uh, but certainly in, um, it was used to track everybody. We had massive tracking centres. Uh, people would be given calls. I think in Australia, you'd actually get a, uh, sorry, in New Zealand, you'd get a message on your phone saying uh, you were just at the supermarket. Uh, there's now a positive case. You must isolate isolate for 14 days. Uh, so, yeah, no, it definitely happened. And it was almost, uh, you know, ground zero for where that technology was uh, tested and trialled. And I also understand that Australia and New Zealand, at least Australia anyway, you could wake up in the morning and find out you could have just an instant lockdown that day if their case count was too high or some unelected public health bureaucrat decreed that your area you couldn't go anywhere. I mean, you know, is that an accurate description? And 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 then I'll, then we'll take a break, but I'll ask you about the psychology. But how much how much control did they have over that? Like in other words. Yeah, you, know, you want to go for a walk. Uh, you know, was it, it was it day to day? Were there different rules, or was it pretty much months on end of the same rules? Yeah, look, day to day, um, you could wake up, uh, and it might be a different um, story in the morning. So, uh, an example was we got our car stuck um, in um, a very unfortunate location, and we needed a tow truck. Uh, we went into lockdown an hour later. Like that's how quick it was. It was a snap lockdown. And so we're yeah. trying to get hold of the tow truck guy. And he's like, oh, I'm at the pub. And we're like, well, could you come and get us? And he goes, you know what? We're about to go in lockdown. I'll pick you up after an hour. So yeah. that was exactly how insane it was. You were locked down. You were locked down immediately um, in some cases. And yeah, absolutely. The rules change from day to day. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Snap lockdown. I knew there was a phrase like that. All right. We have to take a break. We're talking with Katie Ashby uh, Coppins. She's a civil litigator, human rights lawyer. We're talking about the tyranny that is public health. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. Stay tuned. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Yesterday, I let you see one of Joe Biden's worst moments when he falsely accused the special counsel of bringing up his son's death during their interviews in October. Well, the RNC has put together a montage of more of Joe Biden's worst moments. Watch. I, uh, um... Anyway, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I'll maybe choose my words. I was just thinking, uh, uh, the, anyway, but I, I just, look, I mean, want more? Putin's kleptocracy. Yeah. It was in February, February, uh, January, 
after being elected the late January, early February. He said, uh, it's not, we need, uh, not just, uh, well, I won't go into it. And there's plenty more where that came from, folks. Again, I asked the question, how could this man be president of the United States? 25th Amendment now. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. I was such a young age. Everything changed. My name is Chloe. When I was 13, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. When I found out, I just didn't know how to react. I felt like everything was just kind of closing in on me. It just became a routine. Dad's doing chemo. I'd come home from school, wait for mum to finish work, and we'd go straight to the hospital, spend a few hours there, just draw. It was hard to navigate going to school. Hundreds of kids, and I was the only one with a dying dad. He was diagnosed in March, and then he died in October. Towards the end, I heard about canteen. It kind of felt nice to know that they had other people like me. They understood what I was going through, and we didn't even have to chat about cancer. In 2020, I became a youth ambassador, so I can help others the way they helped me. I've done so many things since I was 13. I've graduated high school, university, gotten my license, made a move across the country. Life now is just a whole lot more fun. Please give a gift today to support more young people like me experiencing cancer. From climate change to energy and environmental matters, you're listening to Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, continuing our discussion with Katie Ashby Coppins. Uh, she's from Australia slash New Zealand and even in the United States. Uh, she's a civil litigator, human rights lawyer, and she's fighting uh, these initiatives. She's fighting the COVID tyranny with initiatives to provide uh, uh, reforms to our system. So this can't happen again. All right, Katie, one question. I remember Jacinda Hardin, the New Zealand a prime minister, I guess you'd call her. Uh, she had said at one point, stay in your bubble. I remember that distinctly. And also that the government will be your sole source of truth, the single source of truth. What was her deal? Was she just as power hungry a politician as you could ever get? How bad was New Zealand compared to Australia? And which was worse, in your opinion, in terms of tyranny? Yeah, look, um, I think you've captured both of those things, which I think we've made immense uh, number of memes out of and put on billboards. Um, <laughs> the other one that she uh, was so famous for was uh, when she was asked if she was trying to make two tiers, uh, two tiers of people uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated. She said, yep, yep, that's exactly what yeah. I'm doing. Uh, yes. So she, she's she's very memorable. Um, uh, look, both places, uh, Melbourne was really bad with under Dan Andrews. Uh, Going back to New Zealand, it seemed to you know just go up, get amped up on steroids, and get worse there as well. Uh, being able to get even into the country was so tough, and so many people ended up not being able to get back. That citizens refused entry into their own country. Uh, now, one of the you're good. No, no. Well, one of the things I remember about New Zealand was they were bragging that they had low COVID case counts because they were an island and they isolated. But that was only true for a brief time, right? What didn't it eventually, like any restrictions, COVID eventually hit just as hard as anywhere else, showing the lockdowns had no impact on transmission. Did you, do you have a comment on that or do you have an analysis? Yeah, like Australia, New Zealand and Australia, because we're six months behind really the um, waves of infection, we had elimination policy and there was uh, very low numbers, very low numbers really until after vaccination started and then, you know, the num the COVID uh, infection numbers really jumped up. So we're almost the reverse of uh, Israel, for example. Israel had high infection rates and then vaccinated. In uh, New Zealand, we were had high vaccination numbers and then, and then everyone got COVID. Uh, so yeah. we were really hit with the Omicron wave, uh, never much of Wuhan and certainly uh, only a, a, a little bit of Delta. Okay. So when you look back now at this, what, you know, and your your whole issue is now, I guess, proposing reforms and coming up with uh, different methods by which we can never repeat this. You have instructions and templates 
for people uh, you know, to fight pandemic treaties, to, I guess, to do other reforms uh, and to maintain your right to choose what is right for you and your family, medical freedom. Um, tell us a little bit about how, how you're pushing back against this uh, whole tyranny to so make sure that this kind of thing never is allowed to happen again. Yeah, sure. So uh, in both Australia and in New Zealand, we're doing a lot of work around setting out a full set of terms of reference for royal commissions to be held in both countries. So we can actually look at what's been done well, uh, what could be improved upon, uh, and a whole lot of questions need to be certainly answered and a lot of people need to be pulled uh, into uh, the witness box and to give evidence on what their decisions were based on uh, and to get our findings. Once we actually have findings on information, it certainly makes informing future based on uh, and to get our findings. Once we actually have findings on information, it certainly makes informing future uh, options um, um, well very important. For example, how can you have under our Emergency Act uh, in Australia or New Zealand the ability of one or two people to make these massive decisions uh, about the country. Who are they relying upon? Is their evidence appropriate? And um, you know, is it suitable for New Zealand? Well, you know, we were following a lot of uh, recommendations from the WHO and uh, other places around the world, and we threw our pandemic um, plan right out the window uh, in both countries. Wow. Um what was the resistance level like? Uh, you know, it's amazing when you look at the world today, the farmers began revolting in the Netherlands. They formed their own political party, avoided the closure of 10,000 farms. You have farmers in Romania, Poland, Germany, France, farmers at the gates of the EU uh, headquarters in Brussels, just saying hell no to the net zero climate tyranny. And the, and the EU is backing off. What kind of resistance was there in Australia, New Zealand in 2020, 2021, especially when vaccine mandates, were people sheep accepting it or was there a vibrant underground resistance? How would you characterize it? I would definitely say that there would, there were a lot of sheep or lemmings <laughs> uh, and there was, a, there was a resistance, you know, I'd probably say about 20%. I think there was quite a bit of a silent resistance one that didn't really actively speak about it because you, you know, any discussion was quashed so hard. Uh, but I, the numbers of vaccinated weren't nearly as high as they allege or suggest. They kept splicing and dicing the numbers to make it sound better. But I'm sure I'm I'm confident that the numbers were not nearly as high as they that they were saying. So I think that the resistance was there. I think though for sure now the resistance is much bigger, and a lot of those people that were busy, just happy to be told what to do, has certainly asking a lot of questions. And I haven't met a vaccinated person uh, that wish, wishes um, they were, well, was glad they were vaccinated. Yeah, exactly. And one test to that, by the way, is ask how many of them are still getting boosters. Almost no one I know who got the vaccine is getting any of the boosters that are highly recommended by the same public health officials. By the way, I did not get the vaccine. And I proudly say publicly that when we had vaccine mandates here in America, I was in Boston uh, traveling at the time. I just went and Google, printed up a fake federal government, CDC, Center for Disease Control passport, put my name on it, fraudulently presented it, was able to eat in restaurants, and I laughed at the whole system. And I am not worried about repercussions. I would have, and I urged people publicly at the time, don't get the vaccine, get a fake ID card if you need it uh, using fraudulent documents, because that's what the government is a complete fraud. So I had no problem. Uh, recommending that. I don't I don't want to digress into that, though. Uh, when they did have the vaccine passports, how how in, in Australia, New Zealand, how onerous were those? How strict were they for restaurants, for stores, grocery stores? Did you need a vaccine technically to do anything in society or how did it work? Where were the unvaccinated allowed? Uh, so the vaccine passes came in everywhere. The um, need to have them for, at a cafe, uh, to have them um, at any sort of general store. A lot of these stores still actually couldn't even be open, but effectively the only place that uh, unvax that you didn't need a pass uh, to go to was a supermarket. There was still that base um, fundamental right to be able to obtain food. Um, so that was possible in both uh, Australia and New Zealand. But of course, there was still the tracking out the front. So if you did want to scan your 
past then they still encouraged you to do so so it was a bit of mix of things but you know essentially the supermarket was the only place you couldn't go we got really good at picnics um, in fact you know all these businesses that have been shut for months and months and months on end were then still stuck because there were still large portions of people that weren't vaccinated they weren't allowed to go to restaurants so everyone became uh, prolific picnickers wow all right and we only have about uh, i guess two minutes left we have bill gates publicly said if you want to know how to handle the next pandemic, look to Australia. Australia did it right. The world should copy Australia. Your comment on that. Bill, why don't you move to Australia and I'll move out? <laughs> All right. And then the final topic here in our final, the, the World Health Organization, I guess, was frustrated. They didn't like that Sweden didn't go along with COVID lockdowns and masking. They didn't like that in the United States, Florida refused to comply and South Dakota, a few other countries, Bolsonaro and Brazil was not big on the pandemic restrictions or COVID restrictions. So the World Health Organization wants to have a pandemic treaty. And the point, my belief is the point of this treaty is a Bill Gates funded scientist at the WHO can declare global instant lockdowns and get rid of any dissenters like Sweden or any other countries that didn't go along. Is, should we be afraid of a, a World Health Organization pandemic treaty? Isn't it just there? to keep us safe. I say with a straight face. I'd be absolutely terrified. It's not just the pandemic treaty that they're working on. It's also the amendments to the international yeah. health regulations, which will both be voted upon in May this year. Uh, look, I think when uh, Francis Boyle, a professor of international treaties, put it uh, like this, uh, never in his entire 50 years of uh, being an international treaties professor, has he ever seen such an attempt at a totalitarian police state? Uh, and he considers that these documents are a grab for both. So goodness gracious, if that's what he's saying, I think we should all be very worried. Wow, thank you very much. All right, well, we appreciate your efforts. Keep up the fight. Resistance is the key here. It's not the great reset, it's the great resist. That's what we have to do. Thank you, Katie Ashby. Coppins, civil litigator, human rights lawyers. Keep fighting the fight, Katie. Thanks so much, Mark. You too. Thank you. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. See you next time.